Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to uh, John chapter 8. We're going to continue our study through the, uh, the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, before we turn to God's Word, just one uh, brief announcement. Uh, some of the kids got uh, cards like this, these four by six cards on their way in. New thing we're doing together as a church uh, to help kids... Uh, you know, engage with the sermons. Uh, I know that it's a skill to learn, to listen to a sermon and process it. And uh, that's something that is important for our kids as, as they stay in our worship service and, and worship with us. They learn to do that. And so we have these cards to help kids to write down the main points. It's going to be a challenge to us, the pastors, to make sure the main points are real clear and where we are in the sermon. And uh, so parents, you can help. If you have younger kids, you could maybe write out the points and they could copy them from you. And as they get older, they can learn to listen to them on their own. And then even older kids to maybe capture more of the sermon. Maybe you have questions that come up during the sermon that uh, you say, I didn't understand that point. I want to write that down. So put your name on these cards. We have uh, out in the hallway, kind of by the, uh, the, the restrooms, and there's a conference room uh, in the corner across from the mailboxes out in the lobby. Uh, there are some white uh, magnetic boards where you can post them there. And then so the pastors can take those down and see what the kids are, are getting from the sermons. And so it's a challenge to you parents to kind of help your kids, coach them in this. Also a challenge to you kids to uh, pay attention to the sermons and, and take notes and, and to have God's word uh, come into your heart and to dwell in your mind and in your heart. So uh, I'm excited about this for my own kids and, and hope you all can benefit from it as well. So uh, so that's what we have for announcements. Um, as uh, most of you can see, um, uh, the title for our sermon this morning is Homosexuality in the Church. And uh, as I read this section of John, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at together, you might say, this passage doesn't talk about homosexuality. Why are we dragging this subject into a passage that doesn't even talk about that topic? Well, uh, before I read the passage, I, I, let me just address that question. Um, you know, if you've been coming to Christ Church for very long, you know that uh, one of the things we do is we just go through books of the Bible and we take whatever passage is next in the book of the Bible. And, and, uh, but we always pick a topic that uh, we are going to address about that passage. And so, you know, there's tons of things you can say about every passage of Scripture. And so nine times out of ten, the topic we're going to talk about comes from that text. Um, but every once in a while, you, there is a certain issue that's happening in our culture. And we say, you know, that issue is not in this text. But if you came to the Bible and said, what does the Bible say about this topic? This might be a passage you turn to and say, well, you know, this passage has something to teach about this topic. Well, um, this, uh, every, uh, every week, you know, as we're preparing our sermons, uh, whoever's giving the sermon presents to the staff kind of their ideas of what they're going to do with this passage. And two weeks ago, I was presenting to our staff some of my ideas about this passage. And Amy Barron, who's our campus coordinator, said, you know, this seems like a good passage to address the question of homosexuality in the church. And as soon as she said that, I was like, I was like, I could see the whole sermon almost instantly. And, uh, and it was, became pretty clear that this is a really great opportunity, it's a great text to address that question. And so, uh, so that's our topic today. And um, I know this is a, a sensitive topic for maybe many of you, many of us. Um, and so it's important for us to handle it with both grace and truth. And... Uh, 
And, that, and that's what's so powerful about this passage is that we see both the grace and truth of Jesus in, in this little story. And uh, so one other preliminary I want to make before we, I read this text. Uh, some of you, if you've read through the Gospel of John in your own Bibles, if you have an ESV Bible, for example, when you get to John chapter 8, it says at the top that this section of Scripture is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And so uh, many people would say, actually, this wasn't originally in the Gospel of John. And so some pastors will actually just skip over this passage when they get to it and say, well, this isn't Scripture. Well, a lot of scholars also say that this is very likely an authentic story about the Lord Jesus. And, um, and this church throughout history has regarded it as a part of the, the canon of Scripture. And so uh, because it doesn't introduce any new doctrines that, you know, everything in this passage you can find in other places in the Bible. So um, I decided, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about the manuscripts and where this comes from. I said, well, let's just preach the passage. I think it has a lot to teach us. It's a, uh, it's a story that really shows the shrewdness of our Lord and his brilliance, and I think it has a lot to benefit us. So, um, so that, those are preliminaries. We're looking at uh, John, just the last verse of John chapter 7, and then the first 11 chapters of John chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then, uh, they went uh, each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word of truth that you have given to us. And Lord, it is because we trust you, we trust your character, that you do not lie. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your wisdom that we come to your word and we believe what it says to us. And uh, we pray that um, your Holy Spirit would accompany your word, that you would form faith in us and obedience in us as your people and, and transform us, teach our minds now as we give ourselves to your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, before I get started on the topic of homosexuality in the church, I, I want to clarify what this sermon is about. Um, it's titled Homosexuality in the Church, and, and maybe more broadly the way we could say that is 
If someone from, maybe you're from the LGBTQ community, if someone from the LGBT community comes to our church, um, what should they find here? What should be their experience here? And I want to distinguish that question from a whole host of other complicated questions that surround kind of the LGBTQ movement. So, for example, one thing that we're not addressing in this sermon is uh, the relationship, our relationship as a church to the the gay community outside of the church. Um, The Apostle Paul is quite clear in a passage about sexuality. He says, we don't have any business judging people who are outside the church. When people come into the church, we hold each other accountable. So we do, you know, have, uh, are in each other's lives. But people outside of the church, that's God's business. They stand before God. And actually, the Bible tells us that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And that all, all people, LGBTQ people, all people, whether Christian or non-Christian, are made in the image of God. And that means they've been endowed with dignity and value, and they should be treated with respect. And so um, they reflect God's glory, and and a glory that, like all of us, has been marred by sin. But if our theology means that we cannot be friends with a gay person, I think there's something flawed in our theology. So we're not talking about what's our relationship to the gay community outside of the church. We're also not talking about the political ramifications of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Um, I'm not saying that's not an important question. That's a really important question. It's a, uh, it's a complicated question, and we can't talk about everything in one sermon, so we're not talking about that in this sermon. But today our topic is homosexuality and in, the, in, in the church. And our model is the Lord Jesus himself. And, of course, this is a famous passage that I just read. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's been quoted by the gay community, right? You who's without sin, cast the first stone. If you're going to judge me, look at your own sin. Well, I think that we find that uh, Jesus does not easily fit into the categories that we see in our culture today. His posture is surprising and nuanced. And so uh, if you're here today, you're a... a part of the LGBT community or visiting with us or if someone you love, people you love in your lives, and you wonder what will someone from that community experience coming to this church? Um, our hope is that they would experience Christ. And what we see in this passage is four things about Jesus that I, I hope would mark our community as we follow Jesus. And this is what they are. The gentleness of Jesus, the biblicism of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and the challenge of Jesus. Four things that I think often our culture thinks can't be held together. But we're going to find in this passage they're held together perfectly in the person of Christ. So four things. The gentleness of Jesus. The biblicism of Jesus. The forgiveness of Jesus. And the challenge of Jesus. I think each is crucial. And this is a, a great passage for us to think about this topic. So four things this morning. And the first is this. What do we hope that someone's going to experience when they come to our church? And the first thing is the gentleness of Jesus. Now, uh, this passage that we just read, you know, is in many ways a masterpiece. You know, it's very short. It's very memorable. It's quotable. And I think it affects anyone who reads it on a very deep level. And, you know, the setting of the drama of this passage, we've been looking at John chapter 7 the last few weeks. John chapter 7 is in Jerusalem at at the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's been all kinds of disputes and debates happening about who is Jesus. There's all this conflict. And after that debate, 
in John chapter 7, the end, verse 53 there, it says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now what's happening is that the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, saw that all kinds of people were being drawn to Jesus. And Augustine, in his sermon on, on this passage, says it was the gentleness of Jesus that was attracting all kinds of people. And I think that many of us can sympathize with, us, with that, that it was the gentleness and tenderness of Jesus that drew us to him. Um, we were lost and confused and trapped in sin, and we found that Jesus was not ruthless with us. He was patient and he was welcoming. He was kind and compassionate. And so when the scribes and Pharisees saw this, they figured that this woman who'd been caught in adultery was exactly the kind of person that would be drawn to Jesus. He was, she's the kind of person who's coming and listening to him teach. And, uh, and I think the fact that this story is present here means that they, they're right. She is the kind of person that was, she's the kind of person, you know, all over the Gospels we see is drawn to Jesus, to his gentleness. But the story goes on and it says in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. Now these religious leaders are in kind of a stark contrast to the gentleness of Jesus. And there are a number of troubling things about this whole scene. I mean, the first is it says that they brought her into the midst of the people. They're making kind of a public spectacle of this woman and they're using her for their own purposes. But then the second question you wonder is you say, you know, where's the man? Right? The law of Moses says the only way you can condemn someone is if you have two or three eyewitnesses. So that means it must be these religious leaders barged in and they must have pulled the sheets off of these two. There must have been a man and a woman there. And the law of Moses does say that adultery in ancient Israel was a capital crime. But both the man and the woman were to be put to death. And so why is only the woman dragged in? This is a total injustice. They are using this woman. They're taking advantage of this woman. They did not care about justice. They were using her to test Jesus. And there is a ruthlessness to the religious leaders. Religious ruthlessness is always self-serving, self-justifying, and it's done in the name of the glory of God. And that's why there are no sins that Jesus criticizes more severely than religious ruthlessness. Uh, it's the religious people, like these scribes and Pharisees that Jesus says, how do you ever expect to escape the condemnation of hell? You are on your way to hell. It's the uh, religious leaders like this. Now, I want to say something about ruthless religion because one of the chief criticisms of religion in our culture, probably one of the chief criticisms of the LGBTQ community of religion, is that it is oppressive, that religions abuse people. And, um, and some of you would say, I have experienced ruthless religion. The Gospels in the Bible would not give us so much warning about ruthless religion unless the Bible acknowledged it is a real plague. And the Bible says 
the church is going to be a mixed bag. The Bible warns us. The church that Jesus is going to form, there are going to be people who are going to come in who are, are ruthless. You're going to have people who really love people, who really care about the truth. You have other people who are self-righteous and, and you know, looking down on other people. And so I think it's wrong to say that anyone who believes the Bible is homophobic. But it's also wrong to say that homophobia is not a thing in the church. And if we want the sexually broken, the sexually lost to come and meet Jesus in our church, his gentleness must be in the air. And people will know his gentleness when they see it. They will know it. And, you know, uh, and I think one of the things that means is that we have to give real care to how we talk about these topics. So I'll give you one example. Um, several years ago, I was invited to speak to a men's barbecue at a church down south, and it was probably 100 men were there, and they'd asked me to give my testimony about how the Lord had changed my life. And uh, at the end, there was kind of a question and answer time. And one of the first questions and answers came from a man, and he said, oh, you're pastor up in Bellingham. You know, what are you doing about all the LGBTQ, you know? And it was kind of, and everyone started laughing. It was making a joke of the LGBTQ community. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, there's 100 men here. Statistically, there's at least one man in this group who maybe grew up in this church. Maybe you got an 18-year-old young man who had crushes on boys when he hit puberty. He didn't know why that was happening to him. He was scared to death to tell anyone. He's wondering, can I talk to anyone in my community about this? And then all of a sudden, he's sitting in this men's barbecue, and there's a big joke, and everyone's mocking and laughing about it. I can tell you he's not going to talk to that group of men about what's happening in his inner life. That is not the gentleness of Jesus. It's not what attracted all kinds of people to Jesus. And it's not what attracted us. And so first we see the gentleness of Jesus in this passage and the ruthlessness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But what did the scribes and Pharisees expect was going to happen when they brought this woman to Jesus? Well, they probably thought, you know, the same thing we think. Well, Jesus is gentle. And they say, this woman should be stoned for committing adultery. They thought he was going to say, don't stone her. God loves everyone. It doesn't matter what they do. And they thought because of his gentleness, he would then go against the Bible and deny the word of God. Well, of course, he doesn't do that. And instead, we see a second quality of our Lord in this passage, not just his gentleness, but second, we see the biblicism of Jesus, the biblicism of Jesus. And I couldn't think of a better word than biblicism. You might be like, what does biblicism mean? All I mean by that is Jesus' consistency to uphold the word of God. Throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus quoting the, 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 uh, the Old Testament, the scriptures. He speaks of the word of God with confidence. Actually, at the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' m- most famous sermon, this is what he says at the beginning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. That's gentle Jesus, who also says there's no way I'm relaxing the law that God has given to us. And so when the scribes and Pharisees think they're going to catch Jesus denying the Bible, do you know why there's no way Jesus is going to go against the word of God? Well, I think there's a subtle answer in this passage of verse 6. You see what it says? This they said to test him, that they might find some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, some of you will know that little detail. You're like, why does it talk about Jesus talking on the ground? What was he writing in the ground? You know, there's all kinds of speculation around that. You know, that some people, he was just kind of thinking about what he was going to say. This is a hard question. He just needed a minute to catch his thoughts. Some people would say he was trying to get... Uh, the attention off the woman, and he was distracting everyone to get their attention on him. And, uh, and you know, some people say it was just a historical detail to show us that this actually really happened. Well, you know, we don't know for sure. I think the best answer is to look at other places in the Bible. Where does it talk about a finger writing in the Bible? And there's only a couple other places. And probably the most important one is when the law of Moses was given. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments onto the tablets of stone. And, uh, and so I think that this, what's happening here is that uh, the scribes and Pharisees are quoting the law of Moses to Jesus. And Jesus is writing on the ground thinking, I wrote that law. I am the God of the Old Testament. You're going to try to challenge me to go against my own word that I wrote. And here he is. Maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments that included you should not uh, commit adultery. And the scribes and Pharisees think he is going to either say, yes, stone her, and then everyone will think he's not gentle, or he's going to say, don't stone her, which would mean he went against the law of Moses. Instead, we see what he says in verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the importance of this passage is that his gentleness is paired with how he upholds the word of God. He maintains the seriousness of adultery and sinning against God's law. He doesn't say that God's law was too harsh. But he, refuse, he is refusing to let these religious leaders use God's word for their own hypocrisy. You know, of course, one of the questions that comes from this saying of Jesus, does this mean that we can never criticize or judge anyone? You know, if he says... Well, you have to be without sin to judge someone. And well, you know, in other places, Jesus says the church does have authority to judge. He says to his disciples, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He empowers the church to make judgments about people's lives. We need that accountability in our lives. But just as he turned these scribes and he says, you need to look at your own heart. You need to look at your own sin. He's always doing that. Right? You know, uh, in the, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say about judging people? He says, you know, if your friend has, your brother has a speck in their eye, what are you supposed to do first? Before you can deal with someone else's sin, you have to take the log out of your own eye. He's constantly saying that. But Jesus is a biblicist. And, every, and in every generation, there are issues where the church is told the Bible is crazy. How could you ever believe in that old book? And the question of sexual ethics is without question that issue in our day. To follow Jesus, we must share his biblicism. Now, some of you may ask, okay, Jesus is committed to the Bible. The, the, this passage is about adultery. Everyone, most people think adultery is wrong. 
Uh, but what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What did Jesus say? Did he say anything about homosexuality? Well, Jesus says in another place that sexual immorality defiles a person. And the, the, word for sex, the Greek word that's used for sexual immorality is porneia, which is like a really broad term that encompasses all kinds of sexual immorality. And you say, well, what's included in that word? Well, Jesus was a first century Jew who believed the Bible. That means his definition of that word would have been, come from Leviticus 18, which gives a list of sexual sins. And in Leviticus 18, you have right next to each other, you have, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. So there's adultery. Two verses later, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And along with other commands in this passage about incest and sexual abuse and sex with animals, and all of this would have been encompassed in Jesus' definition of porneia. Now, if you go read, though, Leviticus 18, you're going to see another verse. Actually, the verse right before the adultery verse says this. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness when she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And some of you say, well, you know, why aren't you giving sermons about not having sex with your wife when she's on her period, you know? Why, you know, we don't really talk about that. You're picking and choosing which verses you're making a big deal of. And, you know, that verse, you say, well, that was kind of a ceremonial thing from the law of Moses. And, you know, there are a lot of laws in the law, uh, in the, uh, law of Moses that we don't keep anymore. You know, most of us eat bacon. They weren't allowed to eat bacon. You know, it says you're supposed to sacrifice these animals. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Through redemptive history of the Bible, the, the law has changed. And there are ones that are no longer in place. So how do we decide what laws are kind of normative, unchanging laws, and ones that have changed over time? Well, I think a key to answering that is the principle of repetition. And we don't find verses forbidding homosexuality only in the Levitical laws of the Exodus community of the 15th century B.C. We also find them in Paul's letters in the first century, writing to cosmopolitan cities like Corinth and Rome and Ephesus, He's writing into, you know, diverse, uh, ethnically diverse, religiously diverse communities that are very much like our, our modern world. And he quotes Leviticus 18. And he says those laws are still in place. On the topic of homosexuality, the Bible is clear and consistent and repeats itself. And as challenging as it might feel, we have an obligation to trust the word of God in the midst of of this culture and to follow the example of Jesus' biblicism. But I'll tell you, it's almost like this passage is, is doing a balancing act. You know, the beginning of the Gospel of John says that Jesus came with grace and truth. And you know, so far we've seen his gentleness. The gentleness is his grace. And the biblicism is his truth. But it's as if Jesus knows that the, God's law can be like a hammer that can crush us and shame us. So again, the balance continues with a third point is the forgiveness of Jesus. We see the gentleness of Jesus, the biblicism of Jesus, and the forgiveness of Jesus. And you know, our culture is in a massive experiment right now. Um, we are constantly telling each other, we are telling our children, the one law that you should live by is follow your heart no matter what. Follow your desires, follow your passions. No, don't let anyone tell you to go against your passions. 
Now, that doctrine goes against the collective wisdom of humanity throughout all ages, not just Christian history. Like, all cultures' greatest wisdom has said, you need to learn to rule your passions, and your passions will lead you into all kinds of destructive living, and you should not trust them no matter what. And unfortunately, the result of the follow your desires no matter what doctrine, the results are going to be shame and regret and heartbreak and depression. And it's going to be people asking, how do I undo all the damage I've done for years of living, following my passions? How do I ever stand before a beautiful and loving and holy God? What do I do about years and decades of piling shame? And by the way, you know, shame comes both from sins that we do and sins that are, are done to us. And that was certainly true of this woman. In this case, you know, at the end of this passage, Jesus says, go and sin no more, which means that she was committing adultery. So Jesus says she did sin. And her own sin, her, her own sexual actions will be a profound source of shame in her life. But also, these scribes and Pharisees have been using her for their own self-righteousness. Using someone else is the definition of abuse. And so this woman has, has been abused. And uh, it's both her own sins and the sins of others are just piling shame. And most people who are facing sexual brokenness in their lives have an overwhelming amount of shame, both from their own sin and from how they have been treated by others. And you could not have a more beautiful picture than this passage how Jesus silences the shame of her abusers and they all walk away, starting with the oldest ones, and they all disappear. He clears away those who are shaming her. And then as she's standing there alone with him who said, you know, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. I mean, that's gotta be scary. He didn't say don't stone her. And then now the one who does have no sin, the one who then does have the right to throw the stone. The one who wrote the law of Moses is the only one standing there. And he is the one who has authority to forgive sins. And he says those precious words of verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. The Lord of heaven and earth says, neither do I condemn you. And I don't care who you are, if you're gay, straight, man, woman, religious, irreligious, there are no words that will transform you like those words from our Lord, neither do I condemn you. There are no words that will wash away shame like hearing those words from Jesus that he does not condemn you, he embraces you, he welcomes you. And if you wanna hear those words, if you wanna know those words deep in your soul, if you wanna know the forgiveness of Jesus, there is only one way. And this story tells us the way. Is subtle again. There's all these subtle details in this story. But you see what happens when all the accusers are cleared away in verse 10. It says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And her response is important. She said, verse 11, no one, Lord. She calls Jesus her Lord. And this is a hint of her faith in Christ. The whole of the Gospel of John is about believing in Jesus. And when she professes this faith, she's immediately uh, forgiven by him. And this is the same with us. The moment we trust in Jesus, all of the shame, all of the sins of our whole life are washed away. And the Bible says like white as snow. We're cleansed. And that's what these words from Jesus do. And so when we say, what is, you know, if someone's going to come to our community... 
What do we want them to experience here? We want them to experience the gentleness of Jesus, not the ruthlessness of religion. We want the biblicism of Jesus to speak the truth of God's word. God's, the wor- truth of God's word is loving to be honest with people. And the forgiveness of Jesus, who is the only, way who can clear, only one who can clear away our shame. But when the woman calls him Lord, it means two things to call him Lord. On the one hand, to have Jesus your Lord means that he's going to pr- you know, protect you and care for you and love you. But it also means that she's saying that she owes him her obedience. And to be a Christian means that we both receive the grace and forgiveness of our Lord, but we also must yield to him our obedience. And that's the last thing that we learn in this passage, is that when someone comes to our church, they're going to see the gentleness, the biblicism, the forgiveness, but also the challenge of Jesus. There is a challenge. And, it, and the important challenge comes in the final words of this passage, the second part of verse 11, where it says, And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. This is not Jesus saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. I just love you no matter what. No, it's saying Jesus loves you. And so that means he loves you, he's going to forgive you. It also means he's going to transform you. His, his love is thorough through your whole life. And if you want Jesus, you have to have all of him. This includes the forgiveness and grace and a willingness to obey and follow him. And I think we need to appreciate the dignity with which Jesus treats this woman. I mean, you know, she's probably had years of sexual sin living this way. And Jesus does not come to her and say, wow, you, you lived a wild life. There's probably no hope for you. He doesn't say that. It's amazing to him that he says, no, go and have a transformed life. I'm calling you to a transformed life. Now, I know that uh, some people may be wondering, okay, I get that with adultery, right? Stop committing adultery. But a person can't just, like, flip a switch and not be gay anymore. Stop being gay. Go and don't be gay anymore. And I, um, I want to say I agree that that is a, a complicated question. And actually, we're going to have one more sermon on this in the month of May when we get into the book of James. And I don't want to address that with just one line in a sermon. I want to address it really carefully. So we're going to have another sermon on this in, in, in May, so you have to wait for that. But I think one thing for us to consider is that this woman has desires that she doesn't get to act on anymore. She doesn't get to follow her heart anymore because she sees how much damage that's done in her life. And again, I wish I had more time for this, but if you're wondering, so, okay, if someone's not attracted to the opposite sex, are you saying that they're not going to get to experience love and marriage and a relationship for their whole life? And I think that one thing that has become an idol both in the church and outside of the church is that we think the only thing that makes a fulfilling life is that you get married. In the church, it's like you get married and you have children, and then that's what's going to really make a fulfilling life. Or out in the world, it's that you find a partner that's you have deep romance and you have deep sexual fulfillment. That's the only way to have a fulfilling life. The Bible has, at the center of the Bible, the most fulfilling life that anyone ever lived is the Lord Jesus. And he was a single man. And then the greatest Christian in history (laughs) was the Apostle Paul, who was a single man. And he said, I wish more of you were like me because then we can serve the Lord. And what that tells us is that we can overemphasize the importance of, of sexuality in our life. It has been overly elevated in our culture. And the Bible says marriage is a good thing that's hard. Singleness is a good thing that's hard. 
Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who are attracted to the gentleness and forgiveness of Jesus, and they think he might be the answer to the tremendous shame they're dealing with, and they might even be attracted to the truth of the Bible. But right now in our culture, we have the tendency to add, I like Jesus, but he better not touch my sexuality. This is an area of my life that is off limits. Now, we have to realize that that kind of posture is impossible for a Christian. We have all come to Jesus because we are lost. We are lost in our relationships. We're lost in our emotions. We're lost in our thinking and behavior and our life goals. Everything is lost, and that's why we are Christians. Are we really going to tell Jesus, but I'm not lost in my sexuality? Becoming a Christian will transform every part of your life. When Jesus is your Lord, he is Lord of everything. And when he is your Lord, you will experience both his gentleness and forgiveness, but also his biblicism and his challenge. He came to us with grace and truth, and we must trust him in both. So it doesn't matter who you are. That is the Jesus we hope people will meet when they come to this community. Let's pray together.